As we open God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Lord, we know that salvation belongs to you. We know that your son is our deliverer. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet and guide us to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In his name, amen. Our text today comes to us from John chapter 3, and I'll be exhorting on verses 10 through 21, but we'll read from verse 1 just to get the context. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's holy word. As we begin to consider uh, this passage, specifically verses 10 through 21 tonight, it will be useful to first uh, think about the person of Nicodemus and how he's portrayed by Jesus and by John in writing this gospel. In this passage, Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. We're told in verse 1 that he's a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, And so what these three things tell us is that Nicodemus is a respected teacher of the Old Testament. He knows the scriptures very well. 
uh, and he is well respected by his community. The other ways in which, which John characterizes Nicodemus is uh, as a man and as one who came to Jesus by night. If you read verse 25 of chapter 2, John is saying that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then immediately in verse 1 of chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. The reason it's significant that he's characterized in this way is Nicodemus, while remaining an individual, is also in a sense, standing in for the uh, Pharisees, for mankind in general, and for those who dwell in darkness, as John refers to in chapter 1, and as he refers to in this, uh, in this section as well, and as he refers to in chapter 8. And so Nicodemus, while remaining these things and representing these things, he's also an individual who has come to Jesus to ask a question. He doesn't ask an explicit question, but the question that he wants to ask is implicit when he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The implicit question that Nicodemus is asking is, we know that you are a teacher, but what else are you? Who are you? It's similar to the question the Pharisees were asking John the Baptist in chapter 1 when they were asking him, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? So in a similar way, Nicodemus is asking Jesus, who are you? And Jesus answers him about who he is, and he also, more importantly, tells him about why he came. That is the main point that Jesus stresses in our passage over and over, is why he came and what the purpose of his mission was. So the main point that Jesus says is that that he has come to deliver perishing, condemnable sinners from their fate, and he gives them forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. We'll unpack that in three points, with the first being Jesus reveals our deliverance, the second being Jesus is our deliverance, and the third, Jesus reveals the response of our hearts to his deliverance. That's Jesus reveals our deliverance, Jesus is our deliverance, and Jesus reveals the response of our hearts to his deliverance. As we move to consider that first point, there's, this takes place in verses 10 through 15 uh, as Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and we can break this into a couple sections to help us understand it, with the first being how Nicodemus discredits himself and how Jesus establishes his unique credibility and how Jesus reveals his mission of deliverance. And we can see that first section, how Nicodemus discredits himself immediately in verse 10, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And then he continues in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What is Jesus rebuking Nicodemus for here? What is he telling uh, Nicodemus that he's gotten wrong? And it's exactly what has come before in the passage when Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about newness of life through the Spirit. And those are the earthly things that Jesus is referencing. And that might seem strange, but when he's talking of earthly things and heavenly things, the regeneration that is promised are promises in the Old Covenant that, of what the New Covenant would bring. 
And you can find that especially in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, which I would encourage you to look at and compare with this passage, because in that passage we have uh, references to water and how God will wash his people. We have references to newness of life and God saying, I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And we have references to how God will send his spirit to his people. So Nicodemus, as an expert in the Old Testament, should recognize these things as promised in the Old Covenant. These are kind of the ABCs of the New Covenant that have been promised. And if Nicodemus doesn't understand these things, he can't understand the heavenly things that are to come, the glories of the kingdom of God in heaven. So Nicodemus does not understand what he should understand. And then Jesus establishes his credibility as the prophet and the son of man. Jesus says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And here, it might seem strange that Jesus is all of a sudden shifting to the plural and saying, we speak of what we have seen and what we know. Why is he using the plural here? Uh, Calvin says, and I think he's right, that Jesus is including himself with the prophets here. And there are a couple reasons for that. We can look at Heidelberg and what it says about why Jesus is called anointed. It's because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. So Jesus is ordained by God and appointed by God, and we can see that in verse 16, which tells us that God gave his only son and sent his only son into the world. We can see how he is anointed in the baptism of Jesus when the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And we can see how he reveals this deliverance and how he continues to speak to Nicodemus. And we can think of some similarities with the prophets of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is drawn up before the throne room of God. He's uh, before the holy cherubim. And that is when God commissions him to go out and to convict Israel of breaking the Old Covenant and to proclaim to them the promises of the New Covenant. In a similar way, Jesus speaks in Verse 13, speaking of how he has been in heaven and he is the uniquely qualified one because not only is he a prophet who's briefly brought up into heaven, but he is the eternal son of God who has always been with God the Father. And so he is uniquely qualified to speak of these heavenly things. Not only is Jesus the true prophet, but he also establishes himself as the divine son of man in that same verse when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this would be referring to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, in which the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man an eternal dominion, kingdom, and glory. And Nicodemus would be very familiar with this passage, and he would know that this is referring to a royal king, a royal divine king. So Nicodemus' ears would have perked up as he heard this, But then Jesus continues and says something that would have puzzled him. In verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Jesus here refers to another Old Testament story in Numbers 21, the story of the bronze serpent when Israel is being harassed by fiery serpents that are biting them and killing them. They cry out for deliverance, and God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole and to lift it up so that all the Israelites who look to him, who look to the bronze serpent, may have life and may not perish when they are bitten by the serpents. So this would have been very puzzling to Nicodemus. How does the divine royal son of man relate to the story of the bronze serpent? That doesn't seem to make sense. Of course, Jesus tells him the purpose for that, why the son of man must be lifted up, and that would have been clear to Nicodemus because Jesus repeats it again and again in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then in verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. And so the purpose for the Son of Man being lifted up would have been very clear to Nicodemus, but he wouldn't necessarily have understood what this lifting up referred to. Of course, we have the rest of Scripture, we have the rest of the Gospel of John, and we know that all of the Gospel of John drives to the point of Jesus' crucifixion in chapter 19. That is what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of how it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up. And so, because we know this end point, we know that this is what Jesus is referring to, and ultimately, as we trace the story of Nicodemus, as he's mentioned a couple more times in the Gospel of John, we see in chapter 19 that after seeing Christ on the cross, he comes to his burial bearing gifts fit for a king. And it's very possible that he looked up and he saw the Son of Man as Jesus prophesied would happen, and he believed that this dead rabbi could save him, even if he didn't understand all of what was to come in the resurrection. And of course, since we know this more fully, we can also see here a reference to Christ as our great high priest. He has given the ultimate sacrifice of himself, much better than the sacrifices of bulls and goats, and as question 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, he is our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body. And so here, not only is he being referred to as a prophet in the earlier verses, but we see a clear picture of his work as prophet, and by his sacrifice, he takes away the sins of his people. And what is the motive for this mission of Jesus to come and to be lifted up as we move into our second point of Jesus is our deliverance. The motive is in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The motive is God's love for his people whom he knew from before all time and who he elected to be his people. This gospel love is unlike our love in many ways, not just because we are fallen and our love is corrupted, but also because our love is a responsive love. It's uh, like in the Beatles song, I saw her standing there. We look and we see something that is beautiful to us and that is lovely to us, and we respond to that in love, whereas God's love creates what is lovely to him. He did not look at us and see us as lovely because we were dead in our sins and we had marred the image of God Rather, he knew us from all eternity 
and he sent his son to save us out of his love for us. And this love is, uh, John refers to it again in the epistle he writes, saying, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us and makes us lovely through the one sacrifice of Christ. The lovely is given for the unlovely. The beautiful is given for the ugly. The author of life is given for those who are dead in their sins. The just is given for the unjust. The light of the world for those who dwell in darkness and who hate the light. The Lord of love is given over for those who hate. And this love is something beyond what we can comprehend and fathom. It is a love that is an eternal love. Christ gave himself not for those who deserved it, but he gave himself for those who deserved the complete opposite, who deserved his judgment. And he gave himself in order to bring them back to communion with him, in order to restore them to what they were supposed to be before the fall. This was the plan from the beginning so that God may be glorified because salvation belongs entirely to him and he has done what no one else could do and so that his love may be made manifest as John continues in chapter four of his first epistle saying, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And what is the purpose for God sending his son into the world out of this motive of love? It is so that we might not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And as we stated earlier, the main point that Jesus drives home over and over again is that he delivers perishing, condemnable sinners from what they deserve, and he gives them forgiveness of sins and eternal life through his life, death, and resurrection through his work on their behalf. Now this will raise the question, what is eternal life? Since this is so central to the meaning of this passage, so what is eternal life? Our Lord Jesus defines it himself in chapter 17, verse 3 of uh, the Gospel of John, when he says that eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life is to know the Father by the Son through the, Holy Sp- through the Holy Spirit. To know Christ is life. And in fact, Paul says in Colossians 3 that Christ is your life. And so eternal life is not just something that's abstract and just duration of life. It is to truly know Jesus Christ and the Father through Jesus. And perhaps how Jesus speaks of knowing the true God being part of eternal life will remind you of Heidelberg Catechism question six when uh, Ursinus is talking about the purpose for which man was created in the image of God and true righteousness and holiness. And he says that the purpose is so that they might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. That is the original purpose for which we were made We were made to truly know God and to be in relation with him and to glorify him and to worship him. Of course, in Adam, 
that has been marred and we've gone our own way and sought to make ourselves little gods, sought to assert our own dominion rather than trusting in he who made us and who is our Lord. And the wonderful thing about Christ's work, his life, death, and resurrection, all that he has done for us, he does not just move us back to the beginning where Adam was, where Adam was needed to fulfill the covenant of works in order to receive these great rewards, but Christ has fulfilled what Adam failed to do. As Paul says in Romans, Christ is the second Adam. And so Christ does not just bring us back to the starting point, but he has done what Adam failed to do, and he has earned and merited all the rewards that were promised to Adam, and he has given them to you if you believe in him as a gift. As we know in Ephesians 2, even faith itself by which we receive Christ and all that he has won for us is a gift from God. So Christ has not only fulfilled this for himself, but he has given what he has earned to you through faith. As we continue on, I think Aquinas puts it well when he says that by giving eternal life, he gives himself. For eternal life is nothing else than enjoying God. I really uh, love how Aquinas puts it when saying that by giving eternal life, he gives himself. As we said earlier, eternal life is not just simple duration of life. It is not just something where we just continue on living Rather, in giving eternal life, he gives his very self to us, not just in his life, death, and resurrection, but through those, he has accomplished restoring us to communion with him and with the Father and with the Holy Spirit so that we might truly know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, our triune God. And so he gives his very self in numerous senses by giving his body as a sacrifice for our sins, by dying the death we deserve, and by restoring us to communion with him. And the means by which he gives us life is through his death, and the means by which we are declared not guilty is through him being declared guilty and suffering the wrath of God on the cross. It's through that that we have life and forgiveness of sins. Now we move to our third point, how Jesus reveals the response of our hearts to his deliverance. And we can consider this in verses 18 through 21 as Jesus continues speaking to Nicodemus and continues unpacking uh, what the implications are of what he has told him about the deliverance he has come to accomplish. And we can consider what are the responses to Jesus' deliverance, what the results of those responses are, and how those who respond are characterized by Jesus. And when it comes to the responses themselves, our response to Jesus' deliverance is only two options, either those who believe or those who do not believe. There's not a neutral ground or a middle ground here. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. And there are the results that come about from either belief or unbelief. For those who believe, there is no condemnation. As Jesus says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that might remind you of Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation and there is eternal life which is given to us as a gift as we've already talked about. For those who do not believe, 
There is condemnation as they remain in their sins and remain under the wrath of God. And ultimately, as we heard a little bit this morning from Romans 6, we know that the wages of sin is death. And those who continue in their rebellion against God will ultimately die. Now, how are those who respond characterized by Jesus as he continues to go through and explain these things to Nicodemus? For those who do not believe, they are characterized as those who refuse to come to the light. They are characterized as those whose deeds are evil. They are characterized as lovers of darkness and haters of the light, haters ultimately of God. And this is an important thing to understand because it is not simply a knowledge problem for those who do not end up believing. It's not as if we can give someone an education and if we get them to understand all the terms, they'll ultimately come to believe, but it's a moral problem. People don't come to Jesus because they love their sin and they don't want their sin to be exposed and to be judged. And they hate God because God is good and God is sovereign and they are not Rather, those who believe are characterized in verse 21 as those who come to the light, those who practice the truth, and those whose works have been carried out in God. <clears throat> Excuse me, in God. And what does that verse mean? But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is referring back to what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about earlier in chapter 3, about the gift of the Holy Spirit that causes someone to be born again, and all that is good in them has been worked by God and in God. He has given them what is good. He has brought them to newness of life and brought them to himself. As we continue on, I think Augustine summarizes a lot of this very well as he talks about Jesus as Savior and those who refuse to come to him. And he says, you do not wish to be saved by him. You will be judged of yourself. You do not wish to be saved by him. You will be judged of yourself. Those who continue in unbelief refuse salvation, and they are judged by their own merits. They are judged by how they fulfill the law of God, which we know from Romans chapter 3 that there is none righteous, no, not one, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Believers, by contrast, are judged by the perfect, unfailing merits of the Savior. They are judged on the basis of Jesus' works, and he has perfectly fulfilled the law. For those who do not believe, they will ultimately be alone on judgment day. But for those who believe, for those of you who believe, dear Christians, you are not alone on judgment day, but you have an advocate in Christ who has paid for all of your sins and who has given you his righteousness and his life. And in this life, before that day of the final judgment, he has given you another advocate in the Holy Spirit who brings to your remembrance all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done. That is our great hope that we are not alone, but that we have Christ as our advocate for those who do not believe, if you do not believe, why would you refuse the Savior who has shown his love so clearly for those who are perishing? He is almighty 
and He is loving. He is gentle and lowly. He has perfectly fulfilled what we have failed to do. And He has established a people for Himself whom He loves and whom He cares for. My encouragement to you is that Jesus still saves. He saves those like Nicodemus who should know better. Perhaps the equivalent today is somebody who has grown up in church but who does not believe or somebody who has left the church. And Jesus still saves you if that is you. Jesus still saves those who have never heard of him until somebody comes along and tells somebody and tells them about him. He saves you, dear Christian, even if you're worried that you backslide or that you doubt, that you do not have enough faith. He still saves you, and he saves you by his almighty life, indestructible life, his death and his resurrection and his ascension. We have an assurance that we have salvation through Christ, that we have eternal life, that we have been restored to communion with him. And we know that he has been raised from the dead. We are not left like Nicodemus is uh, at the grave, and ultimately Nicodemus would likely have been told about the resurrection later, but we know that Christ was risen for our, has been raised for our justification because he was without sin, and that he has ascended into heaven and is at God's right hand as our eternal Lord and King. He is our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. We have an almighty Savior. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the things that are in your word. We thank you for your gospel promises. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts, sealing these truths onto our hearts. We thank you for Christ and for his work as our prophet, priest, and king. We thank you that now he is in heaven interceding for us, making perfect our imperfect prayers. We praise you in his name, and we pray this in his name. Amen.